Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, African Survivals, Abdias do Nascimento. In Brazil, during the 17th century, there existed a place known as Palmares. It was, at the century's beginning, just a small settlement of escaped slaves. Over the next hundred years or so, it greatly expanded, becoming a group of linked settlements over a large territory with a total population in the tens of thousands. Referred to as a kingdom by some historians, and as a republic by others, Palmares has come to be recognized as an independent black nation in the Americas that long precedes the birth of Haiti near the beginning of the 19th century. Unlike Haiti, though, Palmares did not last. In 1694, the Portuguese succeeded in pulling this thorn from their side, and the last leader of Palmares, Zumbi, was captured and executed the following year. As a landmark moment in the history of black political organization, the story of Palmares ought to be better known, but for Abdias do Nascimento, the thinker we will be discussing today, it was more than an underappreciated historical episode. Nascimento saw Palmares as a source of practical inspiration, a model for black Brazilians in the present who were considering how to strive for a future without oppression. Brazilian maroon communities like Palmares were called quilombos in Portuguese, so Nascimento chose quilombismo as the name for the philosophical perspective on Afro-Brazilian life that he developed. He chose this name in the 1970s while living in exile in the United States. He had left Brazil back in 1968, fleeing the military dictatorship then ruling the country, and did not return until 1981. This time outside Brazil was crucial for his intellectual development and for his fame as an Afro-Brazilian intellectual. For one thing, living outside Brazil made it clear to him how important it was to combat the widespread misconception of Brazil as a place of relative racial harmony. Nascimento offered a diametrically opposed description by speaking of genocide, which he boldly invoked to capture the varied forms and persistent reality of attacks on blackness by the white Brazilian elite. Much of Nascimento's writing takes up the task of unmasking Brazilian racism, seeking to reveal in detail its gravity and insidiousness, part of which consists in the very ability of white elites to convince the world that anti-black racism is less of a problem in Brazil than elsewhere. Nascimento pursued this task with gusto, especially at various pan-Africanist gatherings during his time of exile. Central to the project of unmasking Brazilian racism, to his mind, was the distinctively pan-Africanist task of overcoming divisions among black people based on the problem of mutual ignorance. With the theory of quilombismo, Nascimento attempted to go beyond revealing what is wrong to the task of guiding the construction of a better world. This too he understood to be a form of pan-Africanism. The value of quilombismo as an intellectual orientation can be tied to its simultaneous push of the Black Brazilian outward toward cultural and political connection with other Black people, and inward toward a distinctively Brazilian solution to the problem of racism in Brazil. In our discussion of Nascimento's life and thought in this episode, we will seek to highlight the uniqueness of his contribution to Africana philosophy as a result of his pursuit of these related tasks of unmasking and creatively responding to Brazilian racism. Listeners will recall that our last visit to Latin America involved spending time in Cuba with Juan René Betancourt, or rather, time in both Cuba and the United States, where Betancourt died in exile. There are a number of striking parallels between Betancourt and Nascimento, 
including their biting comments about how people of different racial backgrounds may experience exile quite differently. As you may remember, Betancourt distanced himself from white Cubans who opposed Castro in exile, criticizing their lack of concern for the discrimination faced by black Cubans both before and during Castro's rule. He held out little hope that these white Cubans would begin to show concern for the plight of black Cubans if Castro were overthrown and replaced. Nascimento made a similar move when contributing to a book published in 1976. It was a collection of memoirs and interviews of Brazilians who were in exile for political reasons. In his contribution, he calls it paradoxical for him to be grouped together with white intellectuals, children of the elites that have been oppressing my people of color in Brazil for 400 years. He insists that his situation as a person in exile must be understood as different from theirs, because according to him, his exile didn't start in 1968, that is, the year he left Brazil, or 1964, the year the military dictatorship took power, or at any other time in my life. Now more than ever, I understand that I was born in exile, and my parents and grandparents as well, descendants of African people brought by force to the exile of enslavement in the Americas. Having thus reconceived the notion of exile, Nascimento goes on to provide a concise but expressive autobiography that is helpful for understanding how he came to hold the positions he did. In what follows, we will draw upon this account, or rather an updated version of it published in 1992. We're also using a more recent overview of his life by Eliza Larkin Nascimento, the third wife and widow of Abdiash, as well as the translator of much of his work from Portuguese into English. Abdiash was born in 1914 in Franca, a town in Sao Paulo state. A childhood experience that shaped him greatly was his mother's intervention when she saw a white woman in their neighborhood beating a black boy, a schoolmate of Abdias. Abdias's mother jumped in, violently defending the boy. Larkin Nascimento explains the incident's impact in this way. She waited for no outside authority, no one else to intervene, and her immediate forceful intervention showed little Abdias that we can change something if we are alert and decided and trust her judgment. It is noteworthy that Nascimento's memoir links this memory of his mother to what he calls another Afro-Brazilian experience that made a deep and early impression on me, namely the experience of learning about Luis Gama. This may not surprise listeners who remember Gama as our main example of a race-conscious Afro-Brazilian intellectual in our previous episode on Brazil. When explaining Gama's importance to him, though, Nascimento highlights something we failed to mention. Gama's mother was reportedly involved in anti-slavery insurrections. By juxtaposing this with the story of his own mother's violent reaction to racism, Nascimento links himself with Gama while also celebrating a history of militant resistance to racism by Black Brazilian women. As a teenager, Nascimento left Franca to go to the city of Sao Paulo, where he joined the army. He was dishonorably discharged in 1936, along with a friend, after they got into a fight at the entrance of a nightclub that barred their entry on racial grounds. Nascimento tried getting back into the army the next year, but was ejected again after being arrested for taking part in protesting the dictatorial government of Brazilian President Getulio Vargas. This participation in protest is symbolic of his growing politicization in the 1930s, which importantly included his exposure to the thought and activities of the Brazilian Black Front. This groundbreaking political organization was, for Nascimento, the most important African-Brazilian organization to arise since 1888, when slavery was abolished. Started in Sao Paulo before it expanded to a number of other states, the party fought racial discrimination and strove toward the goal of political representation 
before it was shut down by the Vargas regime in 1937, along with all other political parties. Nascimento remembers learning from their official newspaper about Marcus Garvey, which suggests that his eventual devotion to Pan-Africanism owed something to the influence of the Front. After spending time in prison for protesting against the government, Nascimento went to Campinas, a city in Sao Paulo state, and participated in organizing the Afro-Campinero Congress, a youth-organized conference that drew attention to the various dimensions of anti-Black racism in Brazil. Relevant here to his burgeoning Pan-Africanism is a promise he made along with other organizers of the conference. The most important thing to me was one session in which the Congress organizers swore an oath to return to Africa one day to make our contribution to the liberation struggle of the Black continent, our ancestral home. Later in 1974, while attending the 6th Pan-Africanist Congress in Tanzania, Nascimento celebrated the fact that of the six young men who took part in that closed session of the Afro-Campanero Congress back in 1938, at least he had managed to keep his promise. Around 1940, Nascimento became friends with a number of other Brazilian and Argentinian poets. They came to call themselves collectively the Holy Orchid Brotherhood. With them, he traveled to and spent some time living in Peru, Bolivia, and Argentina before returning to Brazil. A key moment during this time abroad was his attendance of a production in Lima, Peru, of Eugene O'Neill's play, The Emperor Jones. The play's central character is Black, and as we noted in episode 83, Paul Robeson famously filled that role in New York City. In the production Nascimento saw in Lima, a white actor played the role in Blackface. The bad taste this left in his mouth gave Nascimento motivation to begin a black theater company in Brazil. He accomplished this in 1944 in Rio de Janeiro, where he founded the Teatro Experimental do Negro, or Black Experimental Theater, known by its initials, T-E-N. He first got some practice in prison, though. After his return from places elsewhere in South America, he discovered that he had been convicted of a crime in absentia for the same nightclub incident that had gotten him dishonorably discharged from the army back in 1936. While in prison in Sao Paulo, he organized the Convicts Theater, which gave him his first experiences producing plays and directing actors. When he founded the TEN in Rio in 1944, their first activity was participation in a student production of Palmares, a play by Stella Leonardos, depicting the famous Quilombo he would come to treat as a model. For the first production by the group itself, Nascimento chose The Emperor Jones. He wrote to Eugene O'Neill to ask permission to stage the play and received an enthusiastic reply in which O'Neill waived his right to any royalties. The artistic activities of the theater can already be considered political on multiple levels. Nascimento nevertheless tried to keep his political activity separate from this outlet for artistic expression by founding another group, the Afro-Brazilian Democratic Committee. Membership was not restricted to Afro-Brazilians, and at some point Afro-Brazilians became a minority within the organization. Leftists, some of whom were apparently following orders coming from the Communist Party, managed to expel Nascimento and two friends with whom he started the organization, indicting these three Black activists as racists. Reflecting back on this experience, Nascimento expressed disgust at what he saw as a pattern on the part of the Communist left. They use Africans when they need our support or our numbers, but they refuse to recognize or deal with our people's specific needs. Nascimento subsequently dropped the worry about keeping the theater separate from politics, organizing under its aegis two national black conventions, one in Sao Paulo in 1945 and one in Rio in 1946. The first convention produced a manifesto that, on Nascimento's suggestion, 
included a demand for a national anti-discrimination law. Pressure for something of this sort increased after an incident in 1950, when Catherine Dunham, the famous African-American choreographer and anthropologist, was visiting Brazil. The hotel at which she was supposed to stay denied her a room, and it was easy to prove this was racial discrimination, as her white husband came separately and was offered a room. Dunham and her husband wanted to take legal action, but were, according to Nascimento, met with this circular logic upon consulting a lawyer, I'm afraid there is nothing I can do for you. We have no legislation against racial discrimination in Brazil because there is no need for it. In our country, there is no racial discrimination. The fuss Dunham caused helped to bring about Brazil's first ever anti-discrimination law, which Nascimento viewed as rather weak. In addition to other major gatherings like the First Congress of Brazilian Blacks in 1950, another important feature of the TEN's activities was its newspaper, appropriately called Quilombo. It only managed 10 issues, but these offered both original writings and translations relevant to Afro-Brazilian readers. It is telling, for example, that Colombo included a translation into Portuguese of Jean Bassat's Black Orpheus, the introduction to Leopold Senghor's anthology, which did so much to bring attention to the Negritude movement. The timing was right for Negritude to be an influence on the TEN. Nascimento also ran for office, albeit unsuccessfully. Looking back at the TEN, Nascimento saw much to be proud of, but also reason for self-criticism. The integrationist perspective, which, for better or worse, had been my orientation since the 30s, essentially implied a certain distance from our people. He gives the example of how seldom the theater managed to put on performances in black neighborhoods or institutions. On the occasions they did, things went especially well, because of the immediate spontaneous response they received. For the most part, though, they played to the traditional theater audience, meaning the white upper classes. Nascimento had come to see the integrationist perspective as confused, describing the idea of integration as boiling down to African culture's effort to be recognized by Brazilian society as if Brazilian society were other than African. He had become convinced that courting white people to get recognition is wasted time. Ironically, Nascimento looked back with scorn on his integrationism just as he was getting increased recognition from elite white institutions. Living in exile in the United States, he found himself doing things like being a visiting lecturer at Yale University's School of Drama, whereas in Brazil, according to him, no school of theater had ever taken notice of me, almost certainly never would, and if one did, it would avoid me like the plague. He was frequently invited to speak at places throughout the United States, by contrast. As satisfying as all this recognition was, though, he clearly valued the most the connections he made with African Americans. He met with Amiri Baraka in Newark and with Bobby Seale at the Black Panthers headquarters in Oakland. Beginning in the early 1970s, he had an academic home at SUNY Buffalo, which is where one of his most fruitful intellectual relationships developed. Molefi Asante, best known for his theory of Afrocentricity, took a job at Buffalo in 1973. Almost three decades younger than Nascimento, he naturally looked up to the brilliant Brazilian thinker and, by the way, we learned from Asante that Nascimento really knew how to throw a great party. As Asante puts it, his parties were epic in Buffalo, with music and dance and acaraje and aipim, which are Brazilian dishes, and political talk. Asante notes that he once became so enraptured learning from Nascimento that he said, Abdias, you are like my father. Nascimento replied, with a fraternal and youthful spirit, No, Molefi, I am like your elder brother. And in fact, Asante was formulating his theory of Afrocentricity at the same time that Nascimento was formulating his quilombismo, over the course of the 1970s. 
The numerous conversations, rap sessions of African, Brazilian, and African American history did much to shape both theories. We're concentrating in this episode on the so-called elder brother, but we will return to Asante's Afrocentricity in a coming episode. Let us return now to the topic of Nascimento's participation in Pan-Africanist gatherings. In Dakar, Senegal, in 1966, Senghor was the creative vision behind the first World Festival of Negro Arts, which brought thousands to Senegal to perform, display, discuss, and connect. Unfortunately, Nascimento was not among those thousands. This was 1966, two years before he fled Brazil, and the selection of who was going to Dakar was firmly in the hands of Brazil's military dictatorship. Nascimento wrote an open letter of protest, which was published in Présence Africaine. Things were different by the time of the follow-up meeting, the second World Black and African Festival of Arts and Culture, commonly called FESTAC, and held in Lagos, Nigeria in 1977. Not because the Brazilian government became less repressive, but because Nascimento's exile limited their options concerning how to silence him. He was able to, as he puts it, confront the official Brazilian government delegation of hand-pecked white or semi-white intellectuals. They lobbied successfully for the rejection of his paper, but were unable to stop its publication by the Nigerian press and unable to prevent Nascimento registering for the conference as an observer. Most importantly, they tried, but did not succeed, in blocking Nascimento from addressing a plenary session, where he was able to make a statement on Brazilian racism. Asante, who was in attendance, assures us that Nascimento held a legitimacy that none of the official representatives from Brazil could have conceived. What's more, according to Asante, his speech on Brazilian racism was so effective that he established himself once and for all at that festival as a pan-Africanist icon. As Asante puts it, from that speech onward, he was enthroned into the community of pan-Africanists and Afrocentrists who had to be studied and supported in their work against oppressive elements in society. We have already mentioned his participation in the 6th Pan-African Congress, held in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, in 1973. Here, he did not have the same concern of a meddling Brazilian government. None other than C.L.R. James himself expressed hope that Nascimento could make it and that Brazil could receive special attention as part of the proceedings. You may remember from the first episode of part three of this series that the last Pan-African Congress before this one was the fifth one, held in Manchester in 1945 and attended by some of the pioneers of African independence. James played a key role in organizing the sixth Congress, which, just to remind, would be the seventh major meeting devoted to the cause of Pan-Africanism, if we count the one in 1900 organized by Henry Sylvester Williams. Let's turn now to the content of one of these presentations. The title of his contribution at the Sixth Congress was Cultural Revolution and the Future of Pan-Africanism. Its opening lines reveal an intriguing approach to explaining the purpose of Pan-Africanist struggle. Nascimento begins, Brothers and sisters, the contemporary aspirations of Pan-Africanism were a reality for our forefathers. They lived in a land which was their own, having their own cultures, languages, lifestyles, and civilizations. They, and only they, enjoyed the fruits of their labor. This harmony, man, labor, and culture on the continent was disrupted by exploitation and a colonial invasion. Pan-Africanism, then, seeks not to create unity among African peoples, but to restore it. One might object here that the African continent has always been characterized by a diversity of cultures, but he is not pretending that Africans in the past were unified in the manner of, say, an individual kingdom, as he does speak of cultures, languages, and so on, in the plural. And as he develops his theme, the concept of African unity, he further probes the connection between unity and plural cultures. 
He poses the rhetorical question, what is culture if not the creative unity of forces which would only be dispersed in their singularity? Culture is thus defined in terms of an ongoing unification of forces, a thought that helps us see culture as dynamic and changing rather than static. In line with this, Nascimento goes on to define one of the goals of Pan-Africanism as renewing, criticizing, and amplifying our already existent knowledge. He asks his audience to try to visualize with him the elements necessary for a Pan-African revolution and comes up with the following key component. One is the possibility and the promise of the liberation of the human personality without the abdication of its responsibility as a historic being. This sounds very nice, but a concrete example would help us understand it. Happily, he gives one as he honors the country hosting the conference. Tanzania understands our historic position. She is absorbed in self-questioning, interrogating the future, but in a simultaneous movement, she incorporates those of her past experiences which have shown themselves valid to her existence of today and tomorrow. Exemplifying what he means here is the idea and policy of Ujamaa, which we discussed in episode 114. President Julius Nyerere explicitly intended it as a process of bringing traditional African communalism into the present as a means of organizing a modern society. Success would mean attaining the freedom of the human person in a way that respects the human person as a historical being, attached to a past even while looking ahead into the future. Nascimento helpfully expands the point in this way. On the one hand, it is necessary to reaffirm our traditional integrity in the egalitarian values of our pan-African society, cooperation, creativity, and collective wealth. Simultaneously, it is imperative that we transform this tradition into an active, timely, and viable social being, criticize its anachronistic elements, update and modernize it. The contemporaryization of African and Black cultures in a pan-African world is a primary goal of our vision. And then he gives another example, this time not from traditional Africa, but rather his home territory of Brazil, the story of Palmares. Standing there in Dara Salam, Nascimento praised Palmares not only for its independence, but also its economic system, as he understood it. The Republic of Palmares, with its immense population by the standards of the epoch, dominated a territorial area more or less one-third the size of Portugal. This land was the property of all. The fruits of collective labor were the property of all. The free Africans planted and harvested a wide variety of products and bartered with their white and indigenous neighbors. Having thus provided a distinctively Afro-Brazilian illustration for his dynamic model of cultural memory, Nascimento turns to the theme of problems facing Pan-Africanism given Brazilian racism. He brings up the problem of language, that is, as he puts it, the fact that we mutually understand one another using the languages of our oppressors. This has often struck Pan-Africanists as a matter for regret and as a situation worth changing, but Nascimento goes on to point out that Black Brazilians in particular have suffered from the problem. The socioeconomic conditions of Black Brazilians have kept them undereducated and insufficiently exposed to foreign languages. This in combination with the fact that the international meetings of the Pan-African world have restricted themselves almost exclusively to French and English, means that Black Brazilians have been, for all practical purposes, unable to participate in the affairs of Pan-Africanism and its history. Nascimento's speech then shifts to examine the history of anti-Black oppression in Brazil and Afro-Brazilian resistance to it. This made it a fitting first chapter for the book through which he has achieved most attention from English-speaking audiences, Brazil, Mixture or Massacre, Essays in the Genocide of a Black People, first published in 1979, but made more widely available in an edition published 10 years after that. The title may shock, 
as it could lead one to think that Nascimento was critical of any racial mixing by Black Brazilians. That would be surprising, given that Eliza Larkin Nascimento, his widow, translator, and collaborator, is a white woman from Buffalo who met Nascimento during his time there. But the book's introduction helps clarify the title. There, Nascimento explains his subject, racism, but not just any racism, rather a very special type of racism, an exclusive Luso-Brazilian creation, subtle, diffuse, evasive, asymmetrical, but so persistent and so implacable that it is liquidating completely what is left of the black race in Brazil. There is certainly a paradox here, explicitly in Nascimento's contrast between the subtlety of the racism and its liquidating power, but also implicitly in the idea that it could make sense to speak of liquidating what is left in a place like Brazil, where people with a significant amount of recent sub-Saharan African ancestry form the majority. But consider the next sentence. This type of racism has managed to deceive the world by masking itself in an ideology of racial utopia called racial democracy, whose entrenchment has the power of confusing the Afro-Brazilian people, doping them, numbing them inside, frustrating them or barring almost definitively any possibility of their self-affirmation, integrity, or identity. Part of what Nascimento means by liquidation, then, is psychological destruction. It is also instructive when he bemoans the fact that a historian of the stature of John Henrik Clark can be found writing, In South America and the West Indies, the slave masters did not outlaw the African drum, African ornamentation, African religions, or other things dear to the African remembered from his former way of life. Nascimento responds, African cultural expression, especially religion, has been outlawed not only in colonial times, but even today suffers harassment and restriction. African cultural expression in Brazil has never been successfully eradicated, but that was not for lack of trying. The cultural tenacity of the Africans in South America, he continues, cannot reasonably be attributed to a supposed benevolence on the part of Latin Aryans, nor to their character and culture being any less racist. Africans were not allowed to practice their customs and traditions. They forced the whites to succumb to the fact of their cultural integrity through their own ingenuity and steadfastness. What about that other provocative word in the title, genocide? Nascimento writes in the introduction, Among the mechanisms of the social lynching of Black people are forced miscegenation, color prejudice, racial discrimination, and an immigration policy designed for the explicit purpose of whitening the country and taking the means of survival away from Africans. The extensive racial mixing that has famously characterized Brazil has often been celebrated, but that would ignore the way that such sexual relations take place in the context of a society whose elite seeks to be rid of blackness. Nascimento gives us, as an example, this quotation from José Veresimo, a founding member of the Brazilian Academy of Letters. As ethnographers assure us, and as can be confirmed at first glance, race mixing is facilitating the prevalence of the superior race here. Sooner or later, it will eliminate the black race. Nascimento insists that the forced miscegenation experienced under slavery be seen for what it is, that is, systematic rape, the extent of which can be explained historically. Nascimento writes, The difference was that the Portuguese had come to the New World to make a fortune and return to Europe. English settlers had come to stay, so they brought their wives with them. The use of African women to satisfy slave owners in the absence of white women was outright rape. It had nothing to do with respect for the victims as human beings. Then too, the hierarchy implicit in sexual norms under conditions of racism is made explicit in an old saying Nascimento quotes, Branca para casar, negra para trabalhar, mulata para fornicar. 
meaning white lady for marrying, black woman for working, mulatto woman for fornicating. Add to this the history of racist immigration laws in Brazil, including something as recent as President Vargas's 1945 degree according to which immigration must be regulated, according to the necessity to preserve and develop in the ethnic composition of the population the more desirable characteristics of its European ancestry. Nascimento's incisive critique is paired with a theory of liberation. We can find it set out in Quilombismo, an Afro-Brazilian political alternative, published in the Journal of Black Studies in 1980, but drawn from remarks he made at the Second Congress of Black Culture in the Americas. The article's fourth section, Quilombismo, a scientific historical cultural concept, identifies the Eurocentrism of Western social science as a key motive for the development of Quilombismo. Nascimento argues, Black people require a scientific knowledge that allows them to formulate theoretically, in systematic and consistent form, their experience of almost five centuries of oppression, resistance, and creative struggle. How does Quilombismo fit the bill? Nascimento highlights two criteria, the first of which is the avoidance of unnecessary abstraction. The second is that it cannot be a set of imported principles elaborated from the starting point of other historical contexts and realities. Quilombismo takes the concrete historical existence and experiences of quilombos as the non-abstract, unimported basis for thinking outside the bounds of Eurocentrism. Thus, he writes, A method of social analysis, comprehension, and definition of a concrete experience, quilombismo expresses scientific theory, a scientific theory inextricably welded to our historical practice that can effectively contribute to Black people's liberation from centuries of inexorable extermination. In a move we find in too few academic publications, Nascimento gives us in the next section an ABC of Quilombismo. For our purposes, the one to highlight is the one that lets us know that P is for power. Quilombus power means the Black race in power. African descendants make up the majority of our population, thus Black power will be democratic power. His wife Larkin Nascimento fills in for us the story of how, upon his return to Brazil, Abdias dedicated himself to the mission of moving race to the forefront as a political issue in building the new democracy, and later on in the 1990s spent time in the Brazilian Senate. He presented some of the first proposals for affirmative action in the Brazilian context, a policy that, in various forms, became important to efforts to combat racism in Brazil over the decades since his time in office. So, Nascimento provides us with yet another example of a thinker-politician, like the ones we've recently been covering from the independence movement in Africa. But as a man of the theater, he also exemplifies the interpenetration of philosophy and the arts, which has been a concern in past episodes, on topics like Paul Robeson, Lorraine Hansberry, and of course the Black Arts Movement. In the next few installments, we'll be thinking about another art form, the one that may come to mind most immediately as a vehicle for disseminating Africana philosophy to a mass audience, music. We'll be looking at world-famous names like Bela Kuti and Bob Marley. But next time, we'll also be brought to you by the letter P, as in P-Funk, and indeed by the letter F, as things get funky and fantastical, though of course still philosophical, though technically speaking that doesn't begin with an F, as we discuss Afrofuturism, here on The History of Africana Philosophy. Mm -hmm.